Hi, Matt. How's it going? Hi, Franz. Doing good. Thanks. It's Friday. Friday, indeed. Uh, a glorious one at that. Today, uh, we are very excited to welcome on the show Margot Brandenburg. Margot has spent the last two decades working at the intersection of philanthropy, capital markets, and environmental justice. She's currently a senior program officer at the Ford Foundation, where she focuses on strengthening capital markets in relation to impact investment. Margot began her career in international microfinance and has worked with several community development finance institutions. In 2015, Margot founded My Strong Home, a B Corp that delivers resilience finance services to homeowners across the Southeast US. She also co-authored the book, The Power of Impact Investing, Putting Markets to Work for Profits and Global Good. She also serves on the board of the Workers Lab, Brooklyn Cooperative Credit Union, and the Woodcock Foundation, and as an advisor to the National Energy Improvement Fund. So what do you say, Matt? Should we call her up? Yeah, let's get her on the horn, Franz. All right. Hi, Margo. Hello, this is she. Hi. Um, great to have you on. Uh, this is Franz and Matt with Ray's Green. Hi, Franz. Hi, Matt. How hey, are you? Margo. Doing wonderfully. We just read off your bio and we're super excited to talk to you. Ray's Green, as you know, is squarely in the impact investment space, uh, but we are doing so in, in the realm of impact and retail investment using crowdfunding. And one of the things that we are fascinated by and that uh, got us super excited about connecting with you is your authorship uh, in the space, your thought leadership uh, with, with having written The Power of Impact Investing, Putting Markets to Work for Profit and Global Good, um, and also your, your role uh, in the institutional space. And one of our first questions we wanted to connect with you on is, from your standpoint, uh, what is the role of institutional investors into climate change? Because you know, climate action is, is increasingly more and more uh, pressing. Recently, just had a major event down in Texas that was the result of climate impacts and, and resiliency issues with the Texas grid. Um, so the role of institutional investors is a hot topic on the climate space and would love to get your, get your views. Thank you. And first of all, thanks for giving me a call. I'm excited to be talking and um, excited to have this conversation because I think it is urgent and existential, actually. You know, I would say in a nutshell, the role of institutional investors is to provide resources, you know, financial capital quickly and at scale to support our transition to a low carbon and resilient future. And that means, you know, decarbonizing as fast as possible. It means making sure that we have redundant infrastructure so we can withstand shocks as well as possible. It means pricing externalities, um, you know, looking beyond individual companies through capital and supply chains. And it means funding research and development into solutions, you know, as, as many promising solutions and as fast as possible. Something that I think people struggle with in the impact investing space is the donation versus investment. And uh, I'd love to hear what you think the proper blend of philanthropies is 
uh, in terms of donations and investments to advance their mission? It's a great question and, and something I think a lot about and care a lot about. And I think it's important to say at the outset that there are some things that only government or philanthropy could do. I mean, ideally, government does them, um, but often philanthropy supplements or, or plays a role as well. And, you know, those are things like funding public goods, such as, you know, arts and culture, protecting human rights, protecting voting rights. Um, but, but you know, our public resources are under strain and, and philanthropy is finite. So I think it's critical to enlist the private sector as philanthropists, or sorry, let me say that again. I think it's critical that philanthropists enlist the private sector um, as much as possible. And I think, you know, a, a way to do that is to really try to pave the way or crowd in commercial capital. You know, philanthropy can do that by investing early and, and pioneering and hopefully proving out new models or, you know, figuring out what fails and moving on to the next thing. Uh, you know, we can de-risk uh, investment structures through guarantees or through first loss positions or, you know, more uh, mezzanine finance. You know, we can advocate for enabling policy and regulation to make sure that there's a level playing field, um, you know, for, for companies and projects that do this well. I think there's really, you know, a number of, of interplays between philanthropy and investment capital. And I, I just want to add that foundations like the Ford Foundation, like, like other foundations, um, are not just grant makers. They themselves are also investors. So, you know, we talk a lot about the 5% of a foundation's assets that are granted in the form of philanthropy, but historically have spoken much less about the 95% of its assets that are, you know, being deployed in its investment portfolio. And so Ford, for example, has allocated a billion dollars of our endowment toward investments that advance our mission. And, you know, we think that that's a great additional tool in the toolkit, you know, to round out what we do on the program side um, to try and, you know, tackle our, our most urgent and, and pressing problems. That 95-5 split is, is so fascinating because everyone wants to talk about the 5% of uh, the philanthropic dollars from foundations. But yeah, I mean, it's such a such a glaring uh, piece of it uh, is, the, is that other 95%. One of the things you, you talk about um, in your book is this continuum that impact investing kind of sits on between uh, you know, pure kind of concessional almost, um, well, philanthropy on the, on the one end of full-on donations moving through to, you know, concessional and into uh, kind of SRI investing uh, with a profit motive at, a, at the forefront. And we experience that a lot as well in, in our work that even a lot of folks who say, you know, we're impact investors put returns first. So we call them returns first, you know, impact investors. And impact you know as an afterthought if 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 it's uh if it's convenient more or less um and and i am curious as you you know your experience along along that continuum and and you know moving from being a founder into being uh a, a major uh player in the philanthropic world um and then you know even 
even kind of what is the proper role of, of the private sector writ large versus charities and versus the government. Um, because now, thankfully, um, you know, we're in a, in a position where the new US administration uh, has, has come in and decided that climate change and clean energy investment are a top priority. Um, commitments of you know, $2 trillion um, to build back better from the pandemic and from the economic aftermath of, of the pandemic, but also to confront the climate crisis. And one, one question for you that is hot on our mind is what do you, from your standpoint in all of that context, uh, see as progress and what do you hope to see over the next four years with this new administration in place? Thanks. It's a great question. And I'm optimistic, um, given the, the new administration in the United States, that we're going to see a lot of progress over the next four years. You, you, you mentioned a question around, you know, what the role of the private sector is. And I think, you know, when it's its best self, uh, you know, innovation and resource mobilization and moving quickly and nimbly are all you know, comparative advantages, or at least things the private sector can do particularly well. And, you know, as I uh, took my mom to get her second COVID vaccine last week, you know, I owe not a small debt of gratitude to Moderna in this case, you know, the vaccine manufacturer um, that received a lot of funding and enabling, you know, policies from the government. So it, it didn't didn't do it in a vacuum. Um, but I think that leadership and that urgency and that you know innovation are are really fantastic assets that the private sector can bring to the table, and they're things that are really needed in the climate crisis, right? <laughs> that same urgency, um, you know, resources at scale, the innovation, those are all things that I think you know with a proper enabling environment in Washington and in the states and globally, you know, companies and investors can help deliver on. Um, and, you know, I've been um, encouraged to see even before the change in Washington that, you know, big companies, more companies were making commitments to go to net zero. Um, they're sometimes moving up those commitments and including their supply chain or their scope three emissions in those commitments. And I, you know, I hope and I expect that we'll see a steady drumbeat of ever, ever more and greater and more ambitious commitments. Um, I think in terms of the, the role more regulation than policy can play, but but I hope that we'll see uh, a push on non-financial disclosure, right? And a really a requirement that companies uh, quantify their negative externalities and that start reporting on their material ESG impacts, which then allows that data to get aggregated and benchmarked and factored into investment allocation decisions in a kind of consistent, comparable way. Um, and that's that's kind of wonky. And I think it's, it's a means, not an end. Um, but it is something where, for example, Europe has been much further ahead than the US. And, and I hope that the US will, will catch up uh, over the next couple of years or hopefully sooner. And, you know, I I'm really hopeful that we'll see major policy changes like a price on carbon, you know, things that really um, internalize, you know, would have been these negative externalities um, that help align markets with where, you know, we as a species and a planet need to be 
and that you know generate revenue which is also critically in in demand at the moment and for the foreseeable future absolutely and it seems like many companies and countries are upping their commitments and what i've noticed is it seems that these commitments are having trouble finding places to go it seems like there's a block not on the capital side at this point but in the sources uh, to receive that capital that's part of the work that we do at raise green um, which is finding small projects uh, for people to invest in we have our own little recipe for due diligence but i'd love your thoughts on what due diligence do you think is required at a hyper local project scale for example you know a hundred kilowatt solar system on a church or a small urban farm or a four unit affordable housing development you know what type of due diligence would institutions have to see on these local projects to support these types of community scale resilience infrastructure well, I'd love to know the secret sauce of your diligence at Raise Green, but you know, I think one of the single most important um, pieces of information uh, that are part of diligencing a small project or but or any project is is you know community and constituent buy-in, and you know that that can take different forms. I think one of the most powerful signals of a crowdfunding platform like Raise Green is a signal to larger investors down the food chain that X number of, you know, community members, network members, customers, neighbors, what have you, see value in this to such a point that they were able or were willing to contribute some of their own capital, right? Like that beyond the actual value, the dollar value of the capital, that's a very powerful signal to someone who's sitting, you know, in the offices of an institutional money manager, you know, many miles away and is necessarily going to be challenged to to have a really granular or up close understanding of, you know, the efficacy or credibility of that project. And you know, if that were true a year ago, it's that much more true in an era of COVID, right? Where like traditional diligence and site visits have been turned on their head and we need to rely even more on signals. Um you know, that are coming locally, you know, I would hate for for money to be the sole signal just because, you know, obviously there's uh, money is easier to raise in more affluent communities and harder to raise in low income communities. So I think, you know, other other forms of community buy in volunteer hours, you know, sub petitions of support, going to meetings, there's other ways you know, that a, a constituency or a community can can express their support for something. Um, but I think that's essential and I think it's a great signal to investors. And it's also why I think, you know, we need some standards so that these small projects can be aggregated in a way that um, makes sense and is viable for investors. So I think, you know, whether it's to go back to the issue of sort of non-financial disclosure, like whether it's common metrics, um, minimum standards, requirements, uh, places where those projects are aggregated in a presented in a consistent way, like all of that helps us bridge the gap between, you know, that that hundred kilowatt solar project on the church roof 
and eventually down the pipeline, you know, a pension funds investment portfolio. Couldn't agree more. I mean, I think uh, the the thing that we see more than more than anything across the different types of uh, impact investment uh, shops, both venture, you know, family office, uh, philanthropic, um, is that there's such a wide variability in the metrics, or rather the, you know, the the quantified side of what is considered impactful um, and and how it's impactful. And I think, you know, like you, like you said, um, that has been, I think, a big, big barrier for those seeking capital to you know, figure out how best to present the opportunities um, and, and some degree of standardization or common metrics aggregation across offerings is, is a, a key there. But I, I'm also curious kind of what the Ford Foundation's metrics are for tracking impact and you know, how you all look at perspective impact investments uh, maybe on the on the ninety five percent side of of how you're deploying, you know, the bulk of the foundation's capital. Yeah, it's a great a great question. Um, and in some ways, and I'll I'll answer your question, but I would say in some ways, Ford is not. It's not an ideal example only because, you know, we have a whole staff of, you know program experts and and advocates who have a pretty nuanced you know theory of change or or understanding of the sectors where we operate um and so you know i think we'll go pretty deeply on on our opportunities and assess them from a bunch of different standpoints that i put you know hold that in contrast to a, a pension fund or a sovereign wealth fund or an insurance company or you know, an entity whose job it is to to manage capital within a certain set of risk parameters and not to be experts in, you know, housing affordability or racial equity or, you know, financial inclusion. Um, sure. And so the, I think having consistent sort of easy to use standards is probably more, more useful at a certain level for those larger, you know, non-impact expert institutions who, who need you to make it easy for them um, than a foundation for whom this is like their, their bread and butter. Um, but that being said, you know, we also want to make sure our investments are held to a high standard. And for Ford, you know, we, we have four primary strategies that, that um, govern how we invest our endowment mission investment capital. Um, you know, one is affordable housing. Another is financial inclusion. A third is quality jobs. Uh, and a fourth is is uh, racial and gender equity. And so within each of those strategies, you know, we would look, not surprisingly, at different metrics um, and, you know, have probably enough exposure to each of those four strategies to, to have some useful benchmarks. And we look at things, not, not just the sort of outcome numbers or the quantifiable numbers, but, you know, we look at more qualitative factors of, of how integral impacts are to, you know, a firm strategy and um, try to develop yeah, not just a quantitative, but a, a qualitative perspective on, yeah, on how deep and how integral the impacts are to that, to that investor. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, I, I'm a data nerd. And, and what I found, you know, is that 
ultimately, you know, every single shop is doing their own custom set of bespoke metrics uh, that are all derived and manipulated from each other and adding their own. And I, I really do appreciate you flagging the need for standardization. I think the SEC is taking some encouraging steps forward in, in that direction, because I, I do think there's a lot of not snake oil in the impact world, but, you know, it's it's hard to quantify uh, how much better you make someone's life, <laughs> right? Um, these are fundamentally qualitative uh, compared with, say, EBITDA, right? So um, ultimately, my fear in a sense is, one, do <laughs> is the lack of standardization in metrics delaying action we know we have to do, right? We don't need data to tell us that there's racial inequality, you know. Um, and, and then secondarily, you know, which metric set will actually win? I mean, do you think the SEC will make its own set of metrics? Do you think SASB will win? Do you think TCFD or the UNSDGs? I mean, ultimately, we can't have 100 different sets of metrics if we want the standardization uh, you're talking about. Oh, gosh, I really think that's the million dollar or trillion dollar question at the moment. And, um, you know, we support a lot of the organizations that you mentioned. You know, I'm I'm very glad that those organizations and others have prioritized harmonization, in particular over the past year, um, because I think they recognize that to have aggregate confusion in the market doesn't serve anyone and that there's different metrics for different users. So something like SASB, you know, it's North Star's financial materiality, which makes it very easy to justify, you know, for an institutional asset manager who can say, look, this is just a part of me doing my fiduciary duty um, for a mission-driven investor like a foundation or, a, you know, a high net worth individual who's really conscious of aligning their investments with their values. You know, financial materiality is may not be enough um, and they really want to get at you know impact or stakeholder materiality and so you know for them SASB is not the the end at least it might be the start but not the end and they would look at GRI or the B impact rating system or you know other kind of complementary metric sets but the more that those things the existing metrics can can articulate how they relate to one another <laughs> the better someone is able to to decide you know what's appropriate for them you know, I th I'm very curious to see how the regulatory push um, pans out. And you know, Europe is, has been and continues to be ahead of the US. Uh, the UK is obviously no longer part of Europe. And so that like, adds another wrinkle. You know, there's differences in accounting rules versus principle based that kind of precede the, the ESG metrics question. So, you know, I don't I don't know. Um, I think in some sense, you know, large institutional investors are as likely to globalize this as any single regulatory body because, you know, regulation and policy is set at the, the country level, whereas capital is more global. And, you know, the something I, I hope is that we're in this moment where the floor is rising, which is to say that large asset owners and asset managers are increasingly likely to think that there needs to be a kind of a minimum set of ESG standards that are applied across their portfolios, like whether that um, has to do with climate related metrics or diversity and inclusion metrics or some baseline quality jobs metrics that 
you know, there is a floor, right? And your license to operate is dependent on you not breaching that floor. And that, I think, is a huge step forward. But that's not the ceiling, right? And impact investing has been the ceiling. It's been that leading edge. And so my my hope is that as that floor meaningfully rises, that that doesn't inadvertently constrain the ceiling, right? That there's some number at the vanguard who continue to kind of push the frontier in what's possible. And when it comes to metrics, you know, that's just another reason why uh, the different um, disclosure terms and management systems, I think, need to be really clear about where they sit in the ecosystem, right? Because the set of metrics that a large pension fund uses across the board or, a, you know, a very large private equity fund uses across the board are not going to be the same as what it uses in its dedicated impact fund, um, or they shouldn't be the same, frankly, right? Like that impact fund should be setting a higher bar for itself. Um, but but everyone on some level talks about it as metrics, which definitely creates some confusion. So I hope we're at the point where there's enough conversation that we start to get crisper and more concise about you know what we mean and what we need and kind of where in that ecosystem we're playing. Yeah, so so well put. And uh, the analogy, I think, of the floor rising up is, is such a good one. Um, and, and but then also, hopefully the ceiling rises as well. <laughs> um, yeah. Or at well, least doesn't, we, we doesn't fall. Standing outside and just, you know, <laughs> there is no ceiling. <laughs> Sky's the limit. Sky's, I was just going to say that. It's true. Well, Margo, um, thank you so much for chatting with us. Um, it's really been delightful um, to, to hear your insights. Thank you so much for making the time to speak to me. I enjoyed the conversation. Raise Green is a seven-episode podcast that explores the climate crisis through the minds of local leaders and global experts. These short, accessible conversations share new ways of working together via personal stories about creating a healthy, just, and sustainable future. As economic disparity, environmental degradation, and social injustices continue emerging as the defining issues of the 21st century, we need solutions that scale faster than the pace of the problems. These conversations ask how.